Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous. And shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Psalm 32. Good morning, everyone. Is it going to be okay, Tim?
All right, good. All right, we were wondering about the sound system earlier today. By the way, any of you who don't know me, my name is Tom Spiker. Uh, I told Tammy on the way home from church a few weeks ago, my goodness, Tammy, there's more people in the church that I don't know than I do know anymore. So I thought, I'm Tom, in case you don't know me. And uh, I had the privilege of being one of the first pastors, or the first pastor here at Wallasee Community Bible Church. Matter of fact, the guy that was singing this morning wasn't even born yet then, and I remember doing his baby dedication, and Karina on the piano, I remember one time when we were still back in the elementary school in Milford, we asked if anyone wanted to uh, come to the front and uh, let them know that they had believed in Jesus for salvation, and you were one of them, Karina. I don't remember if you know if you remember that or not. So I go way back, and... uh, in case you don't know me, here I am in the flesh here today. <laughs> I would like to uh, uh, invite you to take a Bible now. Uh, we heard the psalm read, but we're going to go through it verse by verse now. I'm not going to project all the verses, but I would really like for you to be able to see it. So Psalm 32, get your Bible, or I guess in the age we're in, your app, and turn to Psalm 32. And just one thing I'll mention before we start today, you know, we've gone through a lot of social change in our country in the last decade or so, and things are always changing. And so we're going to talk about a topic named, uh, called, by the name of sin today, and uh, that's not something you hear much anymore in, in, uh, unless you're in a church, and not even in all churches anymore. But the fact of the matter is, the Bible lists a lot of things that are sinful before God. And if the Bible says it, that's the way it is. It really doesn't matter if we redefine things socially. So just so you know where I'm coming from today, if the Bible teaches it, I believe it. And it's not unloving to uh, call something the same thing that God calls it. Um, So let me just start to set our... um, um, our thoughts today with just a little account. There was once a story told about a a rich industrialist. Uh, He uh, was walking along the docks one day beside the seashore, and he happened to see some young fisherman sitting there with his feet up by his boat, and all the other boats were out fishing. And and he he asked him, why aren't you out fishing? And uh, the young man said, well, I've caught enough fish for today. Uh, This didn't make any sense to the rich man. He says, well, why don't you catch more than you need? The young man said, well, what would I do with them? He said, well, you could earn more money. And with that money, you could buy a bigger boat. You could could go out deeper and and catch more fish. You could invest in nets and and catch even more fish and make more money. And soon you'd have a fleet of boats and you could be a rich man like me. The fisherman asked, well, then what would I do? The rich man said, well, you could sit back and enjoy life. The guy kind of... Stretch looked out to sea, and he says, well, what do you think I'm doing now? (laughs) By the way, I first heard that story. I'm sure most of you have heard it before in different forms, but I learned that when I was in Germany in the army. A Yugoslavian doctor told it to me, and the rich man were the Germans, 
And the young man was the eastern companies who knew how to, our country, people of the eastern con- countries who knew how to relax. I just thought that was interesting. The fact is, uh, this young man had learned a valuable lesson. He had learned how to be content. And if you think about it, for just a moment, how many people you know who are really, truly content? Just happy with the way life is and thankful and you don't hear a lot of what-ifs from them. Um, Just about everyone wants more than what they have. Uh, And most lives, unfortunately, are lived kind of like this. It's something I've even observed in my own life. You know, you get this young person and they're thinking, man, once I get out of middle school and get into high school, then I'll be happy. Or once I get out of high school and get into college and finish with that, then I'll be happy. Once I get a relationship with someone I really love, then I'll be happy. Once I have children, I'd like some children, you know, then I'll be happy. And no sooner do we get the children than, man, once I get these kids raised, then I'll be happy. Then we, okay, well, if I could just get out of debt, boy, then I'd be happy. You know what happens while people think like that? Life. Life is what happens. I have come to know so many people who have spent their entire lives waiting for the next thing that surely that will make them happy. So they, they, ang- they agonize and trudge through whatever they're in and that next thing doesn't make them happy. So there's something else out there. When the fact is every day and every stage of life has its blessings and God intends for us to enjoy them. Well, listen, here's the first thing I want you to know this morning. Contentment will never, ever come through the things we possess. Contentment will never, ever come through the things we possess. I'll tell you a little story about myself. All my life, I wanted a really nice, high-powered rifle. I don't know why. I've never hunted a deer, but I've always wanted one. And I came to really like the Henry rifles. I just thought those are the coolest things. You see them in all the cowboy stuff. So I saved up my money and I bought a 30-30 Henry rifle with the brass. And I, it's been months ago and all I've done is just hold it. (laughs) Yesterday, I took my grandson out to shoot it. He shot it once, I shot it once, the lever jammed. Won't work. Now, granted, I'll get that, but that just goes to show that things don't bring contentment. I was anything but contented when that happened, when I had to bring home that. And Tammy said, well, how was it? And, you know, you know, you have to admit that it wasn't all you hoped it would be. Contentment will never come through the things we possess. Uh, most of you recognize the name John D. Rockefeller. Uh, he was a, the uh, uh, he had founded Standard Oil and was a native of Ohio, and uh, he was the first billionaire. And in the fact that that it happened in the 19th century, he probably even by by any day's standards was the most wealthy man that ever lived. And John D. Rockefeller was once asked in a news conference, "Mr. Rockefeller, how much money is enough?" And without much hesitation, he answered, just a little more. So there was no end 
to that for him. Nothing brought him satisfaction at any level regarding money. It will never be found in the physical and material world. Real contentment cannot be figured in dollars. Have I made that point? Real contentment, listen, is spiritual in nature. If you're looking for true, lasting, permanent contentment, you will never know it in any realm on this, in this life except in the spiritual realm. And Psalm 32 that we're going through today is about this matter of spiritual contentment. It actually tells us how we can do it, how we can achieve spiritual contentment. So if you find that you're not content with life and you're not pleased with where you are, uh, this psalm has a message for you. So the first point I want to make is, is that true spiritual contentment can be attained by anyone, by everyone. There's really no one who cannot attain true, true spiritual contentment. And just a little background on this psalm is, is helpful. Dan alluded to it earlier. David was king over Israel. He had risen from the humble beginnings of a shepherd boy tending his father's sheep to now becoming the king of Israel. The borders were expanded. Uh, there was largely peace within the land. His enemies had been vanquished. He had wealth. He had power. Uh, David was gifted and was writing music. Uh, there was just, David was a man on the move. And everything about him seemed up and up and up. Until one night, he was on the top of his palace roof. And he looked out. And he saw a beautiful woman named Bath. He didn't know her name was Bathsheba, whose name turned out to be that Bathsheba, who was bathing. The Bible tells us that at first he turned away, and then he made his mistake and turned back. And he hatched the idea he was going to send for her, had her brought to the palace, and in the course of time she was pregnant with David's child. That really made a problem for David because. The father of that, or the husband of Bathsheba, was a man by the name of Uriah, who was one of his trusted military people, who was out fighting against David's enemies. David brought him back home thinking, well, if he's home here early on, people will think that baby is his. But he was so faithful to David and to Israel and to the people he commanded that he refused to go to his home. And so David came up with the awful solution of ordering him to be placed in the worst of the fighting where he was certain to be killed. He was killed in battle. And David went on with that. He tried to hide it. One day a man who was by name Nathan, who was a prophet in Israel, came in before David the king and he told him a parable about a rich man and a poor man. And the poor man had this special thing that he loved and cherished. The rich man had everything he wanted, but he took that one thing from the poor man. David was furious and ordered a very harsh punishment on that rich man. And Nathan the prophet pointed to him and said, You are that man. David was crushed. And all his guilt came down upon him, and he knew that he had sinned grievously against God and against the people involved in this. And he uh, 
made a full and open confession. It was during this time that he wrote Psalm 51, which is probably the best uh, piece of writing in the Bible regarding uh, contrition and repentance for sin. And in there, he promises to teach others the ways of the Lord. And most believe that Psalm 32 that we're studying today was the obedience to that psalm. Listen, David was a great musician. He was a great singer. Uh, He was a great and sovereign king. He was a saint in many ways, but he was also a great sinner. And he has a lot to teach us about that and how it's dealt with. Now, we want to start with some definitions. And for that, we're going to read verses 1 and 2. If you please follow along in your Bible. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Now, we need to look at four words here that, date, that were taught in these verses. The first is transgression. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. You can hear from the word trans. That means like translate or transcontinental. It means to cross over a boundary or to cross a line. It speaks of open rebellion against the precepts and the clear commands of the Lord. It it shows sin as defiance or behavior that is sinful in the sense of being defiant against God. And David said, blesses the one whose that defiance is forgiven. The second word is sin. Blessed is the uh, whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. And that that word means literally to miss the mark. Like those of you who are archers, you go for the old bullseye and you're nowhere near it. You miss the mark. You have a crooked arrow or you try to shoot a target or you try to do something right. You miss. That's how sin is viewed in this sense. And there is pictured in the sense of behavior as a defect or defective behavior against God. We see our third word in verse 2. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. Iniquity. And that word means bent or crooked. Uh, It brings to mind something which is warped or distorted. This word refers to our very nature, which we're born with, that bent, distorted, warped nature that uh, makes it our, our very nature to be disobedient and rebellious against God. So we've seen sin pictured as defiance, as defective, as distorted behavior against God. And the fourth word is at the end of verse 2, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. And in whose spirit there is no deceit. So the fourth word is deceit. Uh, Another word for that you see in the Bible is guile in whom there is no guile. And here are the ideas of cheating or fraud or a sham or trickery. And David tells us that all these these aspects of sin are a part of their lives, that while they are a part of our lives, they can be taken care of them. And, and getting them dealt with before the Lord is the key to spiritual contentment. 
Now, slide four. There is a wonderful liberating truth about our spiritual condition. Uh, Notice what David says about each one of our spiritual problems. First, transgressions can be forgiven. Forgiven, that means to lift up, to bear away. Uh, Our defiant behavior towards God, that can be removed, carried away. That sounds good. Second, sin can be covered. And that word means it can be concealed, it can be put out of sight. Our defective behavior towards God can be put out of sight. And that's from God's perspective. So totally can he forgive that he puts it out of sight. And he wants it out of our sight, too. Third, iniquity may not be imputed. Now, that's a bookkeeping term. You've heard me talk about that in the book of Romans, where God's righteousness of Christ is put in our account, and our sin is put on Jesus at Calvary. Calvary. It's the same word, imputed. It means a debt that is not reckoned. Our distortion and bankruptcy will not be held over our heads when God forgives us. The fourth word is our heart can be free from deceit. Our heart can be free from deceit. It can be free from all the spiritual deception and be open and honest before the Lord. How great is that? David had experienced the depths of sin and he did and 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 um and the heights of the grace of God in forgiveness. And he's telling us that that this contentment can be found in the spiritual cleansing that God makes available to us. Listen, true spiritual contentment is defined as a heart that is clean, forgiven, and honest before the Lord. Can you imagine how much less insomnia there would be in the world if that was the case of the human heart? When you lay down at night and you don't have that gnawing guilt. True spiritual contentment is defined as a heart that is clean, forgiving, and honest before the Lord. I believe if we can grasp this truth, our our perspective on happiness and contentment would dramatically change. But you know what? It's not enough just to have it in our heads intellectually. It needs to be deeply rooted in our hearts. We need to, and and we also need to understand that all of this is based on God's love for us in the person and the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ in our behalf. Listen to what the Bible says on the matter. Psalm 103, 12 says this, As far as the east from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Now, how far is the east from the west? Is it this far? Uh, I guess that's east. Where is east? This thing's curved, so I never know where east is. But let's say that's east. Is it in Syracuse? And the west is Milford? No, it's infinite. No matter how far you push it, it's farther. That's how far God removes our iniquities and transgressions from us when we come to him in faith, asking forgiveness. John, 1 John 1, 7, If we walk in the light, as he in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus' his Son cleanses us from all sin. All sin. 
Colossians 2, 13 and 14. And you who were dead in your trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. It's all based on the love of God through the work of Jesus Christ. The bottom line is this. If you are saved and in a right relationship with the Lord, your sins are gone forever. Remember John chapter 1? It's my, one of my favorite verse, uh, chapters in the whole Bible. In 29, verse 29, John the Baptist is baptizing in the Jordan River. And he sees Jesus approaching him and he says, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. When he said that, he meant it. No wonder David the king uses blessed and happy is the one in verses 1 and 2. Now next, there are two steps on the path to spiritual contentment. Two steps. And we have seen what spiritual contentment is comprised of. Now David tells us how it comes about. It was true for him. It was true for us. Step number one, chastisement for sins committed. Chastisement for sins committed. When David sinned with Bathsheba and had her husband killed, he, he kept that under wraps for about a year. I mean, sure, there had to be people who knew, but who's going to be the one to blow the whistle on the king? That's not something you do. Usually that day doesn't end well for one who does that. But when he lived with this sin in his life, he was a different man. Uh, David the soldier had lost his strength. David the singer had lost his, his song. Uh, uh, David the saint had lost his, his satisfaction. Guilt from that sin had stripped it all away. He was miserable and he was paying a very high price for what he had done. Look at verses 3 and 4 again. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength dries up, dried up as by the heat of summer. Now, many of you have experienced pain unlike anything I ever have. Well, the worst actual pain I think I've ever experienced is one time when I had strep throat and that poison got into my body and every joint. I didn't even know if I could get up and walk. I hurt so bad. This is what David's talking about. It's just like, ah, nothing is right. I am absolutely miserable. And his strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. And how any of us who grew up in this area, our hearts were just sick when we saw our crops wilting this early in the year a few weeks ago. Um, and at the end of that, it says, Selah. That's a word that means pause or stop. Let this sink in a little bit. Think about this. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of the summer. Pause. Take a moment. Let that sink in. We know what he's talking about, don't we? 
I bet there is not one person here who doesn't know what he's talking about. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, friends, there is no joy in sin. There may be in the act, but buddy, it's never worth it when it's over. I know you know what I mean here. If we allow sin, you know, the chastisement goes this way. When we allow sin to take root in our lives, the Lord will first of all speak to us. Uh, First, He will speak to us through the Spirit of God. In John 16, 13, it says, When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all truth. For He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak and will declare to you the things that are to come. We commonly refer to this as conscience or that still small voice. We know very well when God's telling us, "Uh uh-uh, don't go down that road. You've been down that road. You need to turn around and come back. We know what that's about, don't we? When we persist in that, God takes it up a notch. And in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 6 through 12, he talks about the chastisement and the punishment that just like a a parent on a child, how God will bring circumstances into our life to make our sin painful so that we don't want to do it. And that voice of conviction will get louder and louder. Revelation 3.19 gets right to the point. It says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. And you know what? There's even the case where when we don't listen to conscience, when we don't listen to the Spirit of God's still small voice, and we don't heed God's discipline in our lives, when we ignore that, we take the pain, that God will even at times take a person's life prematurely. I'll give you two examples of that. The first in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And the more so, more clearly yet, is 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where they were making a mockery out of, out of communion in the church services. And Paul says, because you've done this, many of you are sick and some of you have even died. God takes sin seriously, friends, very seriously. Now, here's a thought to ponder. Everyone, please. If you've got ongoing active sin in your life and you're not bothered at all about that and you're professing to be a Christian, you better take a good hard look and be sure that you are actually reconciled to Christ. Because the Holy Spirit will not let you feel good about that. God will not let you feel good about that through His chastisement. If you are in that situation and you profess to be a Christian and you are not bothered by that, you better take a good look to be sure you are really saved. Sorry, sounds hard, but that's how it is. Take a good look. On the other hand, if you profess to be a Christian and you struggle with sin and the guilt that it brings, I'm not saying that the sin and the guilt are good, but it is evidence that you are saved and God's working in you and trying for your good and my good to turn us around and to straighten up our lives. So, the first step on the path to spiritual contentment is God's chastisement. Step number two, confession of sins committed. Verse 5, I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. 
I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. Let that sink in a while, my friend. Sounds good. When David was confronted with sin by Nathan, he came totally clean before the Lord. It was like a dam broke, and all everything that he was trying to hide poured out. And he was truly, deeply, bitterly sorry for what he had done. And he made a full and open confession before the Lord. And you might think, well, why do that? God already knows, right? Yeah, he already knows. But he still wants us to confess it. You know why? Here's why. Confession literally means to say the same thing. Did you know that? Confess, to say the same thing. To say the same thing about what? To say the same thing about sin that God says about it. (coughs) That it's sin. That you or I did it. No excuses. And Jesus had to die for that sin. And it's wrong. And you know what else? That our attempts to hide it are an affront to God's omniscience. God knows everything. He knows everyone. He knows our thoughts before they happen. And for us to pretend like He doesn't is an affront to Him. So we confess it. And this sort of biblical confession honors God and it humbles us. It reminds us of His great grace, His love for us, Jesus' sacrifice for us, His ongoing intercession for us. And this, in turn, makes us thankful and makes us want to live a life that honors Him with our words and actions. Well, Proverbs twenty-eight thirteen says this, Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper. But he who confesses and forsakes them will attain mercy. And John 1, 9, I love this. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we've seen the two steps on the, on the path to spiritual contentment. Now I want to go with you through five blessings of spiritual contentment. You think it's just something that takes the pain away? No, there's great blessing in obedience to God's Word. I think that's one thing that Christians, especially people who, who want to be believers but really don't want to make that step, they think, oh, it's so boring. No, not, not at all. What can be greater than contentment in a heart that's free of guilt and not to mention the blessings that come with it? Here are five of them. The first is this. The blessing of divine protection. The blessing of divine protection. Look at verse 6 in the first part of 7. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer a prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. Those who walk with the Lord uh, enjoy him as a place of safety and refuge. A beautiful verse about this is 1 Corinthians ten thirteen, where God promises no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. 
Parents, grandparents, think of how we watch over our little ones. We just watch them every step. Just God forbid that they would get hurt or do something dangerous on our watch. How much more do you think God is capable and willing of watching over his children? The fact is, friends, if David had been praying instead of playing, he would have avoided a lot of trouble and misery in his life. Blessing number two, the blessing of divine preservation. The blessing of divine preservation. Look at, the, at verse seven. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Think about that. God's saying, you preserve me from trouble. Wow. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Hey, hey, y'all, Tom's mine. Back off. How's that sound? That sounds wonderful to me. However, you know, troubles and trials will come as we pass through this life. No Christian is free from them either. We all know that. But the fact is, the believer in Jesus will find that, that, that we are preserved through all of them. And when we face them as a child of God, we are kept safe and strengthened by them ultimately. Trouble stalked David's family all the rest of his life, and some of them were direct consequences for what he had done. The rebellion of his children, uh, the rape of his daughter. Uh, uh, um, there was just, David had a lot of trouble after that. But he was preserved by God through them all. Blessing three, the blessing of divine proximity. The blessing of divine proximity. Verses 8 and 9. Now here God speaks. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Do not be like a horse and a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay with you. Here God promises to give David guidance. He promises to give him direction. He also warns David of stubbornness and disobedience, and he's warning us as well. Don't be intentionally dumb, is what he's saying. Don't be like something that you got to jerk a bridle or a bit in your mouth. Be smart. Be all you can be. (laughs) Obey God. That's the best thing we can do. That's where all our blessings come from. He tells David that he will guide them with his eyes. That's pretty cool. This this, This That implies extreme closeness. Now, I can see you all. But I really can only see Raquel's eyes, those brown eyes, which I'm sure can uh, do what we're just going to talk about here. It's a beautiful, loving picture of how God watches over us. Now, kids, you know how parents can give you that look. You all know about that. Spouses, you know how your spouse can give you that look. And you know, back off. Right? Yeah, we know that look, don't we? Uh, Well, that's how God guides us that closely with his eyes. Blessing four, a blessing of divine peace. Man, in a world where there's so much turmoil and so much anxiety, what could be greater than divine peace? Verse 10, many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts 
in the Lord. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Someone made an analogy that an angry, rebellious person is like a person surrounded by a swarm of wasps. Everywhere they turn, everywhere thing they do, they get stung again. The more harder they swing, the more they get stung. Um, I think that's a pretty good, uh, pretty good analogy. Proverbs thirteen fifteen says, "Good sense wins favor, but the way of the treacherous is their ruin." Jeremiah two nineteen adds this: "Your evil will chastise you, and your apostasy will remove you." Know and see that it is evil and bitter for you to forsake the Lord your God. The fear of me is not in you, declares the Lord of hosts. That's a bad spot to be in, friends. Because when we have no healthy fear of God, His holiness, His divine retribution, no knowledge of His word, what's right and wrong, watch out. Well, that analogy continues that a righteous individual, on the other hand, is like one surrounded by honeybees who are busy making honey for them. Now, you ever been stung by a honeybee? Not pleasant, is it? And that's true. We have lots of heartaches and trouble in life. But just like if you want to extend that analogy, all the while God is preparing a place for us in heaven that's far better than any stash of honey that can be had on on this earth. The image is clear. Um, divine peace, the peace that the Bible says is beyond all understanding, is the possession of every child in God through Christ and theirs alone. And it's only theirs, yours, and mine as we have a clean and open heart before God. One more, the blessing of divine praise. Look at the end of verse 7 and then drop down to verse 11. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. It just, you know, David knew how to really celebrate. He, we had times when he was said he danced before the Lord with all his might. And I can just see his mind as he wrote this. He jumped for joy to have an unburdened, pure heart and a right relationship stored with God. And we are liberated in knowing that no matter what this life brings, that we have an eternity in heaven with Jesus. This is a fountain of joy that is the true possession of every believer that cannot be equaled by anything or anyone or any set of circumstances in this life. Now, the ESV uh, of the uh, version of the Bible, uh, this psalm has the heading, Blessed are the forgiven. Does that show that in your Bibles? Blessed are the forgiven. I want to conclude with three things that I believe are the most precious possessions one can have in this life. And two facts about these possessions. They are available for everyone. And they are free. The first is forgiveness from God. What can be better than that? What can be better than to be free from the crushing guilt and separation that one feels when we're not on a right relationship with God? And to know that that our sins have been forgiven as new believers, nothing is greater than that. That's the greatest possession a person can have in this life, forgiveness from God.
The second one is a little harder. Forgiveness of others. Forgiveness of others. Now, I know some of you have been deeply wounded by other people in this life. Deeply. Far more than anything I have ever known. But being angry and bitter at them doesn't hurt them a bit. It hurts you and me. And as hard as that is to do, even if you've been wronged, because God forgave us, if for no other reason, because God forgave you and me, we're called upon to forgive others. That doesn't mean that we have to hang out with them and be their buddies, but just let go of that anger, of that bitterness. That's a great personal possession to be free from that. And the third one is one that I think particularly conscientious people really struggle with, forgiveness of yourself. Forgiveness of yourself. I'm sure David never quite got over the pain that he caused to his people. Another example of that is the Apostle Paul. He never, I I think he forgave himself, but he never quite got over the fact that he persecuted the church. Read his writings. He always refers to himself as the chief of sinners because he persecuted the church. And while God forgave him, it, it helped him at times in his better moments to rejoice in that fact that if someone like him could be forgiven, anyone could be forgiven. And I'll tell you just one personal story here that I'm a very sensitive guy. I can never be the bad guy and not feel bad about it. That's just something the way that God wired me. Even if the other person deserves it, I can never feel good about it. We've had in the last while at work some circumstances that were not right. And they hurt a lot of people. And I lost a very close co-worker over that. And I was angry about it. I probably would have left except that I'm 63 and I don't want to start over again. But here I was, seething with that. It was boiling over and just a lot of things. If you know me, I don't get angry. Maybe once a year. When I do, it's not pretty. But I'm just a happy guy normally. And here comes in twice in, 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 in a short period of time a young kid that's our district pharmacy supervisor He said something to me that was just the wrong thing, and boom. Totally out of character. I spoke to him in a rude and angry way, particularly the second time I did it. I I apologized right away. I mean, I felt terrible about it. Not, Not because, I mean, I didn't think I was wrong, but the way I said it and the time I said it and the place I said it were clearly wrong. And the second time, I was really upset. My coworkers kept telling me, Tom, you didn't say anything bad. I said, yes, I did. I want you to know that I should be an example to you guys. I want you to see me as someone who's different because of my faith. I said, that was the wrong place, the wrong time, the wrong tone. I wrestled with that. Couldn't even sleep a few nights. I didn't want to even tell Tammy. I was so embarrassed. And... Finally, I wrote him a letter after I had already apologized to his face and did it again. And I finally was able to let go of it then. But friends, forgive yourself. When God, when God forgives you and you've done all you can to make it right, then you've got to forgive yourself 
It's a precious possession. Well, that's about all I have to say today, guys. I will just say this in closing. Do yourself a favor. Stay right with the Lord. Keep your heart pure before God, and you will know blessings unlike you can know in any other realm. May God bless his word. Let's pray. Our Father God, we thank you for this time together this morning. Uh, we thank you, Lord, that, uh, that you are so good to us and that you, you are gracious towards us and that you've provided for our forgiveness in total thousands of years ago when you sent your Son on the cross to die for our sin. Father, I pray that you will keep that small voice, our conscience, uh, uh, that small voice will be hearable by all of us, that our consciences will be keen. And when we do sin against you, that we recognize it and we call it what it is and we bring it before.